Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to continue on with our theme of uh, uh, verses where we scratch our heads and wonder why they're in here. And even though we're going to read the, uh, a larger context of this passage, it only comes down to one verse. And Matthew's is the only gospel that this verse is included in. And uh, it just kind of hits us and goes right on. And we might read that and never give another thought to it. Or we might read it and stop and go, why in the world uh, would the Lord include that particular thing uh, within his holy word? When there's so much going on at this moment, this is in the trial of Christ. Uh, there's so much going on. Why does he throw this uh, throw? That's my phrase. Why does he include this verse within it. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read from Matthew chapter 27. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today and and open our eyes to your word, that it might fill us, fill our hearts and fill our minds, that we might have understanding to not just the words on the page, but what it means in our lives and how we are to live these things out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Matthew 27, I'm going to read, uh, so we have the entire context. I'll read from verse 1 through 26. Now, when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse Return the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together and with the money bought pot bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him, that would be Christ, up to them. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, 
Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water. He washed his hands in front of the multitude saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, before we dig into this verse, I have a, a question for you. How many of you have ever had an argument via text okay you were texting on your phone with somebody and you were in disagreement and you were trying to work it out over text anybody ever had that yeah that's a terrible thing texting is for facts how many gallons of milk should i bring home four that's a fact okay don't don't deviate don't try to communicate your feelings other than a straightforward statement like i love you make sure that goes to the right person obviously um (laughs) But communication is, is kind of a fuzzy thing sometimes uh, because there is a difference between, uh, as an example, what I say, what I think I've said, and what you think I say. Okay? And that's, that, that goes across the board in all forms of communication or in all personal interactions. There's what I want to communicate and there is what you think I said. Now, I, I was... Uh, a little taken aback last week, there were a couple questions about our passage. Remember our passage was, um, we, we looked at, at the, the Zechariah passage, and if your son teaches false doctrine, you, you know, mom and dad, you have at him. And then if your son is a glutton, a drunkard, on and on, unrepentant, take him to the city gates and have him stoned. Well, we, we showed that the, that was never put to use, but was there as, as really a, a, an emphasis on holiness and purity. And we see that um, that kind of emphasis is carried over into the New Testament. You look at 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and they've got a guy in there who's who's having having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother, and the church hasn't done anything. And Paul says, kick him out. Kick him out so that the world might have at him, so that Satan might have at him, that he might repent of his sin and be restored. Uh, I had a couple comments that, that people said, Randy, do you think that passage from Deuteronomy could be used to justify honor killings? And I, I said, no. In no way could it ever be used to justify an honor killing. That is a, a Muslim doctrine. That is a terrible thing. Um, and no way could that, those passages be used today to justify any physical harm to, to anyone. Remember, the church exercises spiritual discipline. That's what happened in 1 Corinthians 5, the spiritual discipline. Uh, if you come and you're an uh, unrepentant car thief, I always use car thieves, and you like to steal red Corvettes, uh, you're going to end up in front of the session and we're going to talk about your sin and that you need to repent. You say, but oh, God created me to steal cars and I'm going to continue because I've got this thing about Corvettes. The, the state will put you in jail. We're going to try our best to help you see your sin and repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Um, we're not going to stone you, although we might want to. Okay? 
But we're going to exercise spiritual discipline because holiness and purity is very, very important for the things of God. So I hope that clarified things or that made things a lot muddier. Um, I'll let you work that out. Okay, so that's that's some of the, some of the problems of communication. Now we come to this passage in Matthew, and again it is just one verse, and it is twenty seven nineteen. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, "Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him." That's all that we have about Pilate's wife, and for. Uh, some, uh, she's always called Mrs. Pilate, and others there is this uh, uh, thought that her name is Claudia Procula, Claudia Procula. Uh, so we'll look at that in just a moment. And she says because he is righteous, he is innocent. That's one of the five times in this passage that we read that he is listed as innocent. Okay, Keep that in mind as we go through this. So Matthew is saying not only does Pilate think he's innocent, we see that. His wife thinks he is innocent. Um, those, those people around think he is innocent. I mean, they have to go up and find people to give false testimony against Jesus because there is nothing to convict him of. There is no charge that has any basis for Jesus to be convicted of the crimes that he is being accused of and ultimately crucified for so what's Matthew trying to tell us he's trying to tell us that Jesus one thing is innocent very clearly innocent he is the spotless lamb of God he's the victim of injustice but he is also carrying out the perfect plan of our heavenly father that was laid out before the earth was ever created when there was only the heavenly father and the son and the holy spirit it was agreed that Christ would give his life to pay for the sins of us. Now, why is this in here? Well, there are a lot of ideas and, ex- and, and explanations as to why it's in here. Um, one of the ones that, that, ladies, you will probably appreciate and understand this is, that, is to prove that men should listen to their wives more. Okay? Now, if Pilate had released Jesus, as his wife suggested and requested, his place in history would be completely different than it is today. He is the guy who held court over Jesus and ultimately is responsible for, you know, the verdict that was passed down. Even though he washed his hands and it's not my, you know, I have nothing to do with this. No, he was the guy who sat on the chair. The buck stopped with him. But he only listens halfway to his wife here. I mean, he, he says, well, who can I release? How about Barabbas? Can I release Barabbas? They said, yeah, release Barabbas. Well, what about Jesus? No, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Jesus' innocent blood was then upon the crowd. So he bows to the pressure of the crowd. He bows to all those things that are going on there. Now, there are two explanations here theologians have given. One is that Pilate's wife's message to him was from God okay was from God so that Pilate would further be shown to have convicted an innocent man that's one explanation another explanation is that this dream was from Satan to try to show that Satan was um, trying to stop the crucifixion of Christ because he knew that that crucifixion of Christ would redeem sinners 
I'm not sold on either one, nor am I sold on the original idea there. Yes, men should listen to their wives. There we go. Another idea, another idea <laughs> uh, why this was included is to show that not all Romans were clueless as to who Jesus was. Now, this is seen throughout Scripture. On many occasions, there are people who are not part of the covenant people in the Old Testament, people um, like Romans in the New Testament who are just rank pagans who have a lot of gods, but they, for some reason, understand who Jesus is. Now, Matthew, as we understand, is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, and he is presenting the Gospel story in a very Jewish fashion. But yet, here is a report of a non-Jewish woman, in fact, a very non-Jewish woman, the wife of the Roman governor speaking up on behalf of the Jewish Messiah. It's an unlikely ally that that Jesus has here. So let's look at the governor here for a second and try to understand a little bit more about this context. Pilate says, what shall I do with this Jesus called Christ? What shall I do with this man called Christ? It's, it's a simple question. And most of us in this room understand, what do you do with Jesus? You bow before him. You worship him. You do what he commands. This is what you do with this man called Christ. But Pilate was not too concerned about his soul. In fact, he thought his soul was okay in other fashions and through the other gods that he worshipped. In fact, uh, Pilate wasn't a very nice man. Uh, He was very pragmatic. What worked, what furthered him on his uh, desired path is what he did, and he didn't particularly care about the cost. He was, uh, if we had it in modern terms, he was probably a political animal, political animal. He had grown up in Spain. He had come through the Roman legions under Germanicus. uh, And because of his loyalty to to Germanicus, uh, because of his uh, marriage to the granddaughter of Augustus, he was given the governorship over Judea. And he was not a subtle man. Okay, When you have a Roman legion behind you uh, to enforce your will, you do not have to be subtle. In fact, he would often raid the Jewish temple treasury for his own building projects. Okay, he really didn't care what the Jews thought. This is what he was going to do. He assumed that post in 26 AD. He had no sensitivities toward the Jewish world. He didn't really even understand them. He was there to govern as a Roman. And Romans did things Roman ways. Okay? Now, perhaps the only person in this whole context who is more corrupt than Pilate is Mrs. Pilate, okay? Claudia Procula is uh, traditionally what we figured out her name was, and she had quite a reputation as a bully, and she got her way because she was the granddaughter of Augustus. I mean, she made things happen, and she got what she wanted. Origen, in the third century, suggested that, um, that Claudia Procula had later become a Christian, now, this is, uh, how do we figure this out? Well, there is mention in Second um, Timothy where it says uh, to greet Ebulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. They send their greetings, and so do the other Christians. So there is this thought that perhaps Claudia Procula became a believer because of this dream, that the Lord was using this in some fashion to open her eyes to this. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, there is a Saint Claudia, uh, and they associate her with the wife of Pilate. Um, I don't know. 
I'm not sold on those ideas, but that's an example of one of one Roman who is outside of the immediate context of Jesus who understands for whatever reason that Jesus is a righteous man. I mean, there are other Romans that we see, the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross. What does he say? Surely this was the Son of God. Okay? He had some idea of who Jesus was. And, and really, Matthew is, I think, to some degree, Matthew is challenging his audience. You have all the prophets. You have all the scriptures. You have every opportunity to figure these things out, and you still don't know who Jesus is, but this non-Jewish, pagan, Roman woman knows who Jesus is. What will you do with this man called Christ? I mean, that's the answer even for us today. For us today. So the passage in general is about the innocence of Jesus. As I said, five times he's announced to be innocent. But then the sentence is still death. And, and we knew, don't, don't, please don't think that it was anything other than God's plan. And God is simply using the circumstances of this time to make sure that Christ goes to the cross where he gives up his life for us. Now, I believe that part of the reason that this one little verse is here, this little passage, is that God allowed an intervention, a moment of intervention. Let's look at the context again. Um, uh, Go to 16. Now, this was the custom to release a prisoner at this time. And they were holding, uh, uh, verse 16, they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. So if if we read into the context, okay? I'm going to read a little bit in here. Why is this interlude here? Because Pilate would have had to stop and listen to the messenger and, and to think about that. Now obviously his wife had a little pull with him because her message interrupts a judicial proceeding in a public setting. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln who, who would let his kids walk into the Oval Office at any time because that was an, an acceptable interruption. Okay? Obviously, a message from his wife was an acceptable interruption no matter what the context. So he goes over and listens to this guy, and that gives the crowd... And those who were in there stirring up the crowd, maybe a minute, excuse me, maybe two or three minutes, to work the crowd up into a little bit of a frenzy. Look at verse 20. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So there might have been a short interlude where the chief priest said, no, no, I mean, because it's like, well, yeah, Barabbas is a pretty bad guy. If they're going to be gracious, let's let's have Barabbas, or let's have Jesus. I'm sorry, Jesus really isn't that bad, but let's have him released. And and the chief priest and the elders come up, and they stir up the crowd and say, no, no, we've got to have Barabbas. We've got to have Barabbas. This Jesus is evil. And so the crowd turns and yells for the release of Barabbas. So here we have Pilate sitting on the judgment seat. At that point, his wife sends this message, have nothing to do with this righteous man, righteous man. And Pilate's response indicates that obviously, as I said, carries some weight with him because he stops. But why is it that 
Pilate's wife has this verdict that Jesus is a righteous man. A righteous man. Now, no doubt, Jesus was well known. That perhaps because of the week ahead and all the events that had gone on in Jerusalem, Pilate and his wife had had some discussion about who Jesus was. And maybe Pilate is sitting back there going, you know, this guy... If they keep stirring this up, this guy's going to end up before me. And I really don't want that, okay? Because I'm, I'm going to be in a no-win situation. And he and his wife are discussing what maybe what he should do. Uh, he, obviously, he knew about some of his events, the cleansing of the temple, um, the Jesus' triumphal entry. I mean, all of Jerusalem knew about that. Uh, perhaps he had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So the news of what Jesus had done had reached Pilate. Maybe he and his wife are talking about it. Uh, and, and so they're, they're discussing it. And his wife was convinced that this man, Jesus, wherever she got her information, was a righteous man. And here you have the testimony of a pagan woman who has really no experience with Jesus other than what she has heard. When we look at the Old Testament, we see the same kind of thing. You have Rahab in Jericho, and she has heard about the God of the people of Israel. And they get there, and she says, I've heard about him. Okay, I'm, I fear him, and I believe in him. Now, she says very clearly that I have suffered many things, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now, there's nothing specific or explicit in the text that says this was a supernatural dream from God for this particular purpose. So um, we're not given clear guidance on that. But a very pagan woman with lots of power in and of herself and prestige has a dream that is sufficiently disturbing to her that she interrupts a judicial proceeding her husband is running. Now, you have to understand the context of dreams in Roman society. Romans were very superstitious about dreams. In fact, there were Romans who were known to have a dream that was so disturbing that, as an example, uh, if I paint a picture for you, a dream that would say, um, you know, in the future I'm going to come to a bad end, and that's my dream. And, and I think, well, that would be dishonorable, and I don't want to come to a bad end. So in the morning, I am so distressed by this dream that I get up and I commit suicide because I think the dream is going to come true. There are cases of Roman citizens actually doing that. Dreams were very important to them. But we're not given any insight to this dream other than she suffered much because of Christ. Now, if you go and you do dream analysis and things, you've got various explanations about why we have dreams. And, you know, Freud said they're the subconscious trying to surface and your conscious self is pushing them down. And Carl Jung said they're from our caveman days and, uh, you know, that's, that's how they come up. And, you know, I don't know how you dream. Sometimes I dream a lot, um, I don't know what that means either, but I dream a lot. Okay, and and um, sometimes it's it's from things that you read that might be in in your mind a little bit, or people that you saw, or or your mind is connecting the dots at the middle in the middle of the night, or you just you know had pizza at ten o'clock and you're having a dream about because you had pizza at ten o'clock. I don't know, but Procula's dream doesn't seem to come from any past life. Doesn't seem to come from a repressed thought or eating late at night. 
Now, I do believe to some degree it did come from the Lord. And, and to some degree, I, I can't, can't quantify that other than that. To show that Jesus was innocent of the charges. Further proof that Jesus was an innocent man. And further proof to, to condemn the Jews who, who were calling for his death. Even though they knew he was innocent. Now, it may have been simply the providence of God. And sometimes God uses secondary and tertiary causes to communicate and further his will in the things here. Now, Jesus was going to die. We, we, we know that and we've seen that. But everything that happens is under the Lord's control, under his control, determined by him, the foreknowledge of his will. They knew the uniqueness of Christ. They knew the leaders were jealous of him. They knew that he was a good man. He had been, uh, they had brought him before Pilate. And all these thoughts, certainly directed by the Spirit of the Lord, uh, maybe culminated in this dream. And she says, we're dealing with the worst possible case. You just got to get away from this guy. It may have been what went on here. Have nothing to do with this man. And I think that's what Pilate wanted to do. He wanted to get out of that situation. I mean, how many of us have been in a situation where we just knew we were not going to win? There's no good outcome in this. You have to go and you have to uh, maybe talk to somebody or address something or people are coming into you and, and they're wanting a, a, a decision on something. And you know, I'm just going to lose whatever decision I make. I'm just going to lose here. Pilate is trying to figure a way to let Jesus go because he knows he's innocent. So Pilate... Offers to release a prisoner. But they want Barabbas released. They don't want Jesus released. They want Barabbas released. And just in context, to give you an understanding, Barabbas is a thief. He is a murderer. And he has has, um, um, treasonous against Romans. Okay? He's done treasonous things against the Romans. So in, in that culture, all those things were the death penalty. So he's just about as bad as you can get at that time. But they want Barabbas released. They want Barabbas released. The crowd wanted a murderer. The crowd wanted a thief. The crowd wanted someone who was treasonous. The crowd did not want the gentle, humble king. Don't you want the king of the Jews released? No, we want the murderer released. Release Barabbas. What about Jesus? What am I going to do with him? Crucify him crucify him it gives him another chance well yeah yeah but what do you what am i going to do with this this man called christ kill him kill christ this is the length an example of the lengths that the world is willing to go to stay away from christ the humble the gentle king the one who comes to save the world does not want the world wants a murderer they don't want to know the truth about Christ. They don't want to know the truth about themselves. All they want to do is feel good. It feels good to kill this guy who doesn't live up to our expectations. It feels good to kill this guy that that challenges us, that brings light into our darkened lives, because I don't want to see that light. It feels good to get rid of him. I want the murderer Barabbas. That's the guy we want. So Pilate, he's probably about the end of his rope. Takes out a basin of water and he does a very Jewish ritual. He washes his hands. He says, I I bear no responsibility for what you're going to do for Jesus. 
How many people have attempted to wash their hands of the responsibility towards their own sin? It's not my, not my fault. Okay, it's not my fault. It's the world in which I was raised. It's, it's the pressures. I didn't have the same opportunities. I got all these problems, so it's this sin is really not my fault. The way I acted is not my fault. Just wash the hands of our own sin. We like to do that sometimes. But yet, the Lord says, your sin is your responsibility. Forgiveness is his responsibility. We can find forgiveness for all of our sins. We can find forgiveness for whatever lays upon our hearts, whatever we think is our problem, whatever we think is too nasty to ever bring to the surface and ever be forgiven or talk about Christ can forgive. Now imagine you're Barabbas. You've stolen. Oh, you've done some other things too. You've killed. You've conspired to be against the Roman government. You're treasonous. You're sitting in a cell, and it's not like a cell today that might have TV and other things like that. No, this is a... Think of the original Ben-Hur movie when they go down to get Ben-Hur's mom and sister out. That's the kind of prison cell that we're talking about. And Barabbas sits in that cell, chained to the wall, thinking, I wonder how many days I got left. Because they're coming to get me. And I'm going to be killed. And, and there I am. And you're just as bad as Barabbas, each of us. And suddenly the cell door is open, and they look in and say, you're free to go. You say, well, what about the guys that I killed? You're free to go. Well, what about that? I was trying to overthrow the Roman government. You're free to go. You are free. Free to go. You know, our hearts are filled with the same types of things. Maybe you've never gone and killed somebody. Maybe you've never tried to overthrow the government. We're just as sinful as Barabbas. And, and here we sit in our sin, and, and all of a sudden the, the jail doors open, and Christ says, you're forgiven. You're free to go. And the way that we go is now the path of Christ. Someone has died in our place that we might know the forgiveness of sins. So why is this verse here? Jesus is a righteous man. He's an innocent man. And he has died for our sins. And we are free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is one of those verses that's here for a reason it points very clearly that Jesus is an innocent man there's no sin in Jesus he had no sin in his heart there were no sinful actions in his life and that sinless life was lived so that he might be the spotless lamb to give his life as an atonement for our sin. Because if you look at our life, no one can stand up and say, hey, there's an innocent man. No, we, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet it is your righteousness that is given to us. It is that righteousness which we have none of our own that is imputed. It's placed within us. And our sin is placed in Christ. And he, being innocent, took it upon himself willingly and obediently as a demonstration of his love for us. Heavenly Father, 
These truths are rich and they are penetrating. That we cannot look at our own sin and say, oh, this is no big thing. It's somebody else's fault. No, it is our fault. Our sin is our responsibility. Forgiveness is your responsibility. And you come and you give it to us. And you give us this grace. And you give us this mercy that we do not deserve and we cannot find anywhere else. Lord, in the next moments in particular, might we experience this, either for the first time or anew as we come to your table, that the things of Christ would be real in our hearts, that the sacrifice of Christ, an innocent man, was for our sin. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.